Good morning again. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter, begins today in this adventure through this letter from Paul to his dear friends in Philippi. It's a book packed with content for our Christian life today. And most importantly, it is God's Word, fully authoritative and having power to transform us. When we come to this Word, we come to God's own direct authority and affection for us. We come quite truly to God speaking. God himself, the God of the universe, the God who who made us and saved us, is speaking to us through this word. So we bring our, our thinking, our way of life, our habits, our dispositions, our cultural instincts, our preferences, all that we are, we bring it under this word and invite God to shape us, to change us, to transform us, to renew us. Let's begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. This June 6th will mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which if you like history, which I do, uh, that's a valuable date to remember. It's when British, American, and Canadian forces landed on the coast of France in a successful attempt to beat back the Nazi advance. It's well known by any even casual student of history that Dwight D. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Allied forces for the invasion. He went on to become the 34th president of the United States, likely because of his success of leading that attack. What is less well known is a conversation that took place thousands of miles away that might have kept Eisenhower out of that position and perhaps out of the presidency as well. The chief military officer of our country during World War II was not Dwight Eisenhower, but a man named George Marshall. Marshall was the man who had promoted Eisenhower from obscurity and positioned him as the leader of the coalition force in Europe, but it was Marshall who was the military authority for the United States and Eisenhower's boss. Understandably, Marshall desired to lead this most significant battle. It would certainly be the deciding battle of the war, and understandably, as a true soldier, he desired to be in the field. 
He had more than earned it. Winston Churchill called Marshall the organizer of victory. However, there was a problem. Franklin Roosevelt thought that the war effort and probably his personal sanity would be better served if Marshall stayed at home. But he was so deferential to Marshall, he was reluctant to bring this conversation up. Eventually, they did meet. And Marshall's quote is priceless. He said this to the president. I just repeated again in as convincing language as I could that I wanted him to feel free to act in whatever way he felt was to the best interest of the country and to his satisfaction and not in any way to consider my feelings. I would cheerfully go whatever way he wanted me to go. Roosevelt would determine that Eisenhower should be the supreme commander for the invasion. He kept Marshall at home. Marshall actually transcribed Franklin's actual order declaring that Eisenhower would receive this command. Because of his calling as a soldier, George Marshall believed that the interests of the country and the war effort and his president, his commander-in-chief, were more important than his own. He considered those interests to supersede any preference, any desire, even any right he might have had to claim this very important and valuable and honorable role for himself. He wanted the president to act without any consideration for his own feelings and for the best interest of the country, and he would cheerfully go wherever he wanted him to go. For the Christian, our calling, our condition in Christ positions us, calls us to a similar disposition. For Marshall, it was because he was a soldier. For us, it's because we are a Christian. We are called to also have no great concern over our interests compared to the benefit of God's church, the unity of his church, and our own disposition should be. In light of who I am in Christ and the blessings of Christ, I am gladly willing, cheerfully willing to go wherever he wants me to go, to serve however I can serve. Paul might put it this way, if I could summarize his phrase, it would be, the blessings of Christ call us to humble unity toward his people. The blessings of Christ, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done, our condition in Christ, it calls us, it compels us to a humble unity toward his people. Marshall knew that courage on the battlefield against the enemy was not the only requirement for victory. There also needed to be a humility toward his fellow soldiers and toward his president. Paul knows the same thing about the church. He's just exhorted them to be courageous in the face of enemies. But now he says there's another enemy that also endangers the church. You can't just be looking outward at enemies. You have to also be looking inward. And that enemy is pride, selfish ambition that results in disunity, fragmentation of the church. Paul says the church can't live worthy of the gospel 
only by looking outward at cultural enemies. They have to look inward at the danger of pride. They have to decide that the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of Christ, compel us also towards a humble unity toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the logic of the passage. That's how Paul walks through this exhortation uh, to the Philippians. He breaks it down in, in three sections. The first is this reminder of their condition. So we might make that point, our condition. Then he makes this appeal about our unity, how he wants them to be united. And then he explains the means of that unity by describing our humility. So that's, those are the three points this morning, our condition, our unity, our humility. Let's look at here, uh, beginning in our condition. Paul says, so, we might translate that word, therefore, it's pointing backwards in light of, I think, especially 127, where Paul says we're to live only worthy of the gospel of Christ, and especially in the face of suffering and opposition. Therefore, Paul says, in light of our calling to Christ, therefore, and then he begins to describe uh, the, the <laughs> condition of the Christians in almost a, a rhetorically playful kind of way. You notice these phrases, if any, if any, if any. It, it's almost as though Paul is, is, is playfully daring them to acknowledge there's a lot more than just any about any of these categories. If, if any, he's saying even the slightest recognition of these categories of gospel blessing should motivate you towards unity. And he knows that they know there's a lot more than just any. But he uses this not to question that there is any, but to playfully exhort them. The, the commentators look at this and say, you could almost translate this, this phrase, since, or since as we all know, if there's any, wink, wink, and we know there's a lot, if there's any, and then he goes through these categories reminding them of their condition, what they have received in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ... And you can imagine, given what he's just written in chapter 1, uh, the, the smiles of the Philippian church. How much encouragement is there in Christ? Let's ask ourselves that this morning. How much encouragement does your soul have because you belong to Christ Jesus? What would it be like for your soul this morning if you were not in Christ? If you were still facing the wrath of God? If you were still facing this world left only to your own strength and, and your own personal morality? What, what would that be like? How much more encouragement do you have, Christian, because you are in Christ? Your sins are forgiven. The Savior himself promises to be with you wherever you go. There is great encouragement, strength, comfort in Christ Jesus. Condition number one, definitely the case. Yes, there is, Paul. There is great encouragement in Christ. If there is any comfort from love. Now, Paul might mean the love of fellow Christians. I think it's more likely he's still talking about the love of God. There's, there's probably almost a, a Trinitarian uh, kind of... Uh, connection here. You notice it's the, the encouragement of Christ, the love of God that, that probably points to God the Father. And then he's going to talk about the fellowship of the Spirit. There's probably a, a Trinitarian progression here. So what, what comfort is there from knowing that God loves you? What comfort? That, that is great comfort for the Christian, isn't it? Isn't it great comfort for the Christian for you to know that God loves you? He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just accept you. He doesn't just acknowledge you. He loves you. He, he has settled on you his permanent love and affection. 
The Father counts you as his own dear child. He delights to lavish affection on you. Is there any comfort in knowing that? Yes, Paul, the Philippians would say. Condition number two, yes, there is great comfort in knowing that God loves me. Condition number three, if there is any participation in the Spirit. That word is koinonia. It speaks to the, the fellowship language that he referenced earlier with the church. The idea here seems to be that Christians share together the very Spirit of God in their midst. The Spirit of God is among us, and we share together in that Spirit. And since he's going to point them towards unity, it's, it's worth realizing the, the rhetorical power of this. Look, listen, if we share together in the Spirit of God... Does it make any sense for Christians to fight with one another? Since they both literally have the same spirit dwelling within them. We share together in the same spirit of God. We are linked by God himself in the spirit. There is fellowship. We mutually partake of God's spirit among us. Incredible. Yes, Paul. There is fellowship in the spirit. In other words, if, if you are linked in the spirit, are you linked in the spirit? And Paul would say, if you're not, you're not a Christian. If you're not, you don't belong to God. If you are a Christian, then you are linked with every other Christian by fellow participation in the Spirit of God. Yes, Paul. Yes, there is fellowship in the Christian. That, that's me. Raise your hand if you're a Christian. Yes, yes, I have fellowship in the Christian. Yes, I do. I have fellowship in the Spirit. Third condition. Yes, Paul. If there is any affection and sympathy... Now, again, here he might be describing the affection and sympathy of God towards his people. I think probably he's transitioning here to the affection and sympathy that is present in the church from one to another. And notice again the, the wonderful use of the word, if any. He's not saying Christians are perfect. Obviously, he's directing them to the need of unity. And we suspect in the Philippian church there was some division. There was some lack of affection, some lack of sympathy. But he's saying, look, have, have you experienced affection and sympathy because you have come into Christ? Would you describe the Christian church uh, in all of your experiences as completely identical to the cutthroat world that is out there all around us? Or is there some willingness to serve, some sympathy with suffering, some affection? And, and I want to use this moment to point out that I see great affection and sympathy in you. I've experienced this over the years. When Christians in this church suffer, they never suffer alone. They always seem to suffer surrounded by a big hug from this church. Meals are brought in moments of suffering, and people are, are helped to move into their new home on repeated ways, and, and people are sent encouraging texts when they're, when they're tearful or, or, or going through a difficult time or when they're sick. People are, are given rides for their children, and, and there's, a, there's a remarkable expression. Again, we're not saying that we're perfect by any means. I'm sure there's been moments where there hasn't been affection and moments where there hasn't been symphony, sympathy. But, but Paul's not saying, if you've experienced perfect, he's saying, have you experienced any? Have you seen something of the love of God demonstrated through the love of the church? Have you seen some of that? And the Philippian church would have to say, well, yes, we, we have. Condition four, yes. Yes, this is our condition. What's he doing? Paul's basically touring them through the treasure house of the blessings they've received in Christ and inviting them to remember the glory of their current condition. 
He's pulling them away from our natural tendency to think about our own uh, wants and needs and preferences and to remind them of the, the glorious condition into which they have been brought because they've been linked with Christ, including the affection of the church and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit and the encouragement of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, remember all of the blessings of your condition, church. The New Testament considers forgetfulness a deadly habit for the Christian. And so Paul and Peter and James, they're always reminding the Christians of things they should already know, but they quickly forget because forgetfulness leads to ungratefulness, and ungratefulness leads to bitterness, and bitterness leads to rejecting God and other people. Forgetfulness is the door through which many sins follow. So Paul takes them on a tour. Let's remember again. Let's remember again the conditions of the Christian, the encouragement of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and sympathy that you've received because God chose to be kind to you. Each of these conditions you could reverse and remember what it would be like if they were not the case. Consider for the world the condemnation of Christ. Because that is the only thing the non-Christian has to expect from Jesus, is his condemnation as the judge of the world. Consider the anger of God toward sinners, because that would be our condition if Christ had not saved us. We would look at God and we would see an angry countenance looking down at a sinner who has rejected him. Consider the exclusion from the Spirit of God. Left in the cold, the only spirit that the non-Christian can count on is Satan himself influencing their every action. There is no comforting spirit when you're suffering. There's the lies of the enemy whispering about the value of poisonous idols in this world, and there is no guarantee of affection and sympathy. There is only isolation and defending yourself in the dog-eat-dog world. Without Christ... Consider what your condition would be. In Christ, consider encouragement and love and fellowship and affection and sympathy. Consider your condition in Christ. Therefore, since we're called to be worthy of the gospel, Paul might say it another way, let's remember the blessings of that gospel as we drive towards our calling to unity. The the Bible never exhorts without providing motivation. And the greatest motivation that we can receive is a reminder of our blessings in Christ. And so Paul first motivates them by touring them through the treasure house of their new condition, and then he gets to his appeal. Point number two, our unity. Our unity. If all of these things are true in any measure, and they are in abundance, Paul says... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. His actual direct command, technically, the direct command is complete my joy, which in itself is somewhat remarkable. I mean, we've learned already Paul is an incredibly joyful guy. 
I mean, he is, he's joyful in prison. He's joyful when he's falsely accused. He's joyful when rival preachers looking to kind of get at his emotional state are preaching out of selfish ambition. He's joyful about that. He is incredibly joyful. But here we have an admission that his joy is incomplete. It's not finally fulfilled or, or filled to the brim unless the church is unified. We have an admission of Paul that there is something that can can limit his joy, and that is disunity in the church. Fractions in the church, that can limit Paul's joy. It's a remarkable admission from Paul. I need you, he might say to the Philippians, to do something. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to be unified in Christ so that I can have a fullness of joy. Apart from that, my joy will have an area of limitation, of weakness. As long as the church is disunified, my joy is incomplete. I love how Alec Montier paraphrases this. He says, I will need no further happiness, he says, if only I can hear that you are a united church. Then he has this pyramid of phrases to describe what will bring him joy, that they would be of the same mind, that they would have the same love, that they would be in full accord and of one mind. Now, what does Paul mean by this unity? I think it's a very important uh, caveat here. Paul is not saying that they should become lemmings identical to one another in every regard. You all have to like science now because one of you does, or you all have to hate science now. That would be impossible and out of teaching with the rest of the Bible, even about the gifts of the church. No, he's not saying be identical. He's saying that your focus and your passion should unite you. What you are most about should be the same. Your greatest love, not all your preferences and interests. He's not looking for a, a identical group of, of you know, unchanged Christians who just rubber stamps of each other. No, he's saying no. You have this one overarching love, one mindset, one disposition. You're to have one accord in the most important thing. I think all of this unity ties back to 127. Remember I told you how important that verse is. Live only worthy of the gospel. There's this one language that is a theme throughout Philippians. Oneness. The one thing we are to be worthy of is the gospel. And they are to be one behind this one mission. Their mind should be set on it. Their, their love should be set on it. They, they should have this desire that their love for each other is, is driven by a unity that that is crucial. All the other things that they are should find their place behind this one gospel-centric mind, having the same love, being in full accord. They're together. There's nothing that is driving them apart. Now, we do not want to see this in the same way that the culture talks about unity. Gospel unity is not pluralism unity. Let me explain the difference. Pluralism unity says that there's nothing in the world that anybody says or does that anyone else should say is wrong. So the worldly unity says, let's all be together agreeing that nothing anybody does is wrong. We're going to be as broad as we can possibly be, that only the extreme types of thinking 
out there on the fringe of society could ever be considered wrong. Everything else is right. It's a, it's a unity of inclusion. We're going to include all of the thinking in this world. We're going to be together. As long as we're together, it doesn't matter if we disagree about truth. That is not what Paul has in mind. You can know that because what he says is needed to get to this kind of unity is personal humility. It's not doctrinal humility. It's not saying, well, whatever you think about Jesus is fine. I think differently about Jesus. Let's all agree that we can just think however we want about Jesus and we're good. This isn't doctrinal humility. This is personal humility. Very important distinction. Paul would have no category for a Christian who, under the guise of humility, abandons the doctrines of Christ. In doctrine, we must be unyielding. In key doctrines, I'm not talking about secondary matters of disputable thinking. I'm talking about key doctrines Paul would call us to courage, to boldness, to firmness. Where the Bible is clear, the Christian humility is standing for those biblical doctrines. But here... Here he's talking about the unity that comes when people are not about their own interests. They're about the interests of Christ. They're about the good of one another. The unity that is often spoken of in the church is is a a Christ-centered unity. Not an abandonment of Christ or of his gospel or of his doctrines. There's courage and unyielding conviction there. But it's a unity that comes when people are not looking out for themselves. It's that we agree that Christ and his glory is most important and we're not concerned about ourselves. That's the unity when when Paul speaks of unity in the church. He's talking about a unity that puts the first things first, the second things second, and our own interests last. That's the kind of unity that Paul is speaking of. If I could use a, a simple sports analogy. When we say a football team is unified, we don't say that they happily let the other team score. Oh, they're really unified. They're really a unified team. We also don't say that they happily exchange positions throughout the game. Oh, let's be unified. And if you would prefer to be the quarterback this down, I don't want to get in your way. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that, and let's, let's just do whatever we feel like doing in the moment. No, that's that's absurd. That's not unity. That's chaos or cowardice if you let the other person score on your team without any effort to stop them. Unity is about saying we all are working for a bigger goal than any one of us. We're unified about that. We're of the same mind about that. There might be a, a, a quarterback over here and a linebacker here and a running back here and a wide receiver there and a coach there. But we're all together in this one goal. Paul's saying you need to be together in the one goal, doing what you can do for your teammates and for their greater good and for the ultimate goal of gospel worthiness. Be unified, he says. And this is what's going to complete my joy. It is not about truth. Very, very important that we distinguish. We must distinguish the difference between what is often called humility in the culture, which is not. 
It is the essence of pride to deny the biblical doctrines of salvation or of the word of God in the name of humility. That is not humility, that is pride. It is the essence of pride to succumb to cultural temptations in the name of being a humble people following Christ. That is not humility, that is pride, that is defiance of God. It is humility to lay down our own preferences for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the unity Paul is urging them towards. Unity, he says. That unity is only possible through humility. That gets to Paul's third point, our humility. How is this kind of unity? This is like a goal that Paul sets for us. He wants to see a church that is unified, that is united, that's not factious, that's not disinterested in each other, that's not about their own thing. How does that come about? How can we do that, Paul? What what does that mean practically for us? He describes it in verses 3 and 4, and he's going to continue describing it through the next number of verses, and really uh, through most of the remainder of this chapter. It's all going to be about providing examples for what this kind of humble servanthood looks like that creates gospel-centered unity in the church. It begins here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How does a gospel-honoring unity take place in the church? It's when the church makes personal humility its ambition. A Christian who has received the blessings of the gospel that Paul enumerates counts personal humility as a glorious calling to reflect worthiness on the Savior who laid down his life for his people. Christians rightly look at Christ as their glorious Lord, the one they want to follow, the one they want to emulate, the one that they adore. And since they do, Christ's humility of laying down his life to save us should motivate us in our disposition towards others. St. Augustine said, If you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, And third, humility. What does Paul consider a great danger to the church? Not just external enemies, but internal ambition. What would dishonor the gospel by fostering division in the church? Not just doctrinal disagreements, but personal arrogance. Paul is determined that the church should have none of the self-promotion or selfish ambition that is present naturally in the human heart. Paul says, do nothing, one of these comprehensive commands, do nothing from selfish ambition, the desire to promote yourself, or conceit, even viewing yourself more highly than you should. Do not, he says, view yourself more highly than you should. Do not seek to promote yourself. But in contrast, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, view them as if they have a higher rank or a higher value. They may not, most of them don't, but you should view them as if they did. View them as if 
When you come into a room, you and one other person, you are the person of lower rank and you are addressing the person of higher rank or the person who has uh, more responsibilities or more value or is more important and ought to be deferred to. That's how you're to view your fellow Christians. What a contrast from the idea of this world where you stand up for yourself and you only use humility if it can get something for you on the other end. Humility is present in this world usually as a means to achieve a personal goal. It's not that it's not lauded uh, in the culture to be humble, to be meek, to be mild, but, but usually it's seen as a very subtle and effective form of manipulation. That's not the humility that's being encouraged here. Paul is saying, no, I actually want you to count the person as more significant than you. not, Not just to get something from them. I actually want you to count them as more significant. I want you to view this as the appropriate way to respond to them in light of what God has done for you in Christ. And he's going to go on to explain the logic of that argument that, look, if Christ himself counted the well-being of others above his own rights as God the Son, then certainly every Christian should have ample motivation to count a fellow Christian as more significant than themselves. If the one we claim as Lord cast aside the rights of his deity to take on our humanity and worse than that, our sins, then certainly we can view a fellow sinner with an appropriate level of honor and deference and respect, counting their interests ahead of our own. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Paul does not allow even a little bit of selfish ambition in the church. He does not allow even a little bit of conceit. Paul counts conceit a great enemy that the Christians should be battling against on a daily basis. Paul would say to us, conceit is the enemy of the church, the enemy of your calling. Fight it. Hate it. Reject it. Displace it. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves, more important, more to be valued, more to be protected, more to be guarded, their time more important than yours, their money more important than yours, their schedule more important than yours, their their desires and preferences more important than yours, more significant than yourselves. He uses the cultural language of significance against the natural tendency of our hearts. He's saying, look, I'll I'll give you the categories of significance. Here's how I want you to use them. Count others more significant than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Very helpful qualification. Paul is not uh, defining here some idea of of Christian masochism. Look, I, I want you to totally neglect yourself. Don't think about yourself at all. Stop eating and grooming and just be completely dedicated. No, he's not putting forth some kind of insanity. You know, the the person who says, I'm not allowed to comb my hair and brush my teeth because that would be, you know, thinking about my own interests. I'm not allowed to to buy food for my family. That, that would be looking for my own. No, he's, he's not putting forth insanity here. He's assuming a certain level of looking at our own interests. He's saying, do not only do that. Look out for the interests of others. 
The way that you look out for your own interests, also look out for the interests of others. Look out for their interests. Don't look only for your own. He assumes that Christians, like every person, is looking out for themselves most of the time. He's saying, look, you need to add to that this category of looking out for the interests of others. I think there's to be a proactive nature of this humility. Humility isn't just a calling in certain moments when you're having a a difficult argument with somebody else. Oh, yeah, right, I have to be humble. No, no, there's a proactive nature to this. You look ahead about things that you care about. And Paul is saying you need to look ahead at things that other people care about. Are we thinking ahead for the other person? Are we watching out for their interests? If you've ever watched a kid riding a bike close to their father, you're aware at certain times their father is, is watching what's ahead of them and what's ahead of the, <laughs> the kid at the same time. You're not just watching out for your own direction in the pothole in front of you. You're watching out for their direction in the anthill in front of them. You're watching out for both of them at the same time. And Paul says, yes, exactly. That's what a Christian does. I'm watching out for you. I'm watching out for your interests as well. That's not extra service, that's basic Christian identity. That's not for the unusual Christian, that's for the gospel-honoring Christian. This should be the disposition of the heart. I'm watching out for your interest. I I am not looking to promote myself. I am am not looking to defend my own honor. I, I am looking out for you in light of what God has done to rescue me from his condemnation and hatred and exclusion from his spirit and the and the the abandonment to the harshness of this world in light of what he's brought me into. It is my joy to watch out for your interests and to refuse to promote myself. Paul views pride and conceit, arrogance, as a deadly enemy for the church, and he calls the church to combat it with humility, motivated by the gospel. Many years ago, the Times sent a provoking question to a number of authors What's wrong with the world? Ask them to answer that question, presumably with some paragraph or essay or clever description. (laughs) Author G.K. Chesterton sent the following reply. Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) Listen, the, the Christian is aware he's not the only problem with the world, but he does see in himself a greater and more dangerous enemy than anything he sees outside of himself. He sees in himself a pride that would dishonor the gospel if it could, that would claim a faction for itself if it could, that would build its own kingdom within the kingdom of God if it could. And the Christian says, no, no. I serve a crucified Messiah, and serving him means I lay down my life. Listen, if you're here and you want to know practically what it means to be a Christian, 
and, and maybe you're interested in Christianity and you visited us, uh, practically the first thing it means is believing that Jesus Christ did everything necessary for your salvation. That's the first thing it means. It means that when you come to God, you have nothing to show him of your own. All you can bring to God is your failure to follow God. Just like, that's all I can bring to God. That's all anybody in this church can bring to God. And God takes your failure and places it on his son and crushed his son in your place so that now all you have to do is follow that one that died in your place. The one who rescued you, the one who died for you, the one who saved you from the judgment that you deserved, who brought you into this incredible inheritance where you get to go to heaven because of Jesus. And now he says, follow me. And if you want to know practically what following Jesus means, it means humility. Humility first and foremost towards God, humility towards others. Not a humility like this world that's just squishy on every belief and practice. Sometimes Christian humility is courageous as a lion, but often it's meek as a lamb because the one we serve is called the lion and the lamb. Paul is challenging the church of the absolute necessity of humility if they are going to live worthy of the gospel. Look, let's put the connection together of this letter. Listen, Philippians. You are called to live worthy of the gospel. That means courage and that means humility. That means humble servanthood that results in a humble unity in the church. That's what that means. If you want to know what it means to be worthy of the gospel, it means courage in the face of opposition. It means humility towards your fellow Christians. How can you know if you're faithful? How can you know if you're following God effectively? Well, ask those questions. Am I courageous in the face of the culture? Am I humble toward my fellow Christians? If I am not, it's probable that I have forgotten the glory of that gospel that I'm called to be worthy of. Let's talk about this humility. What is this humility that we're called to? It's not an issue of personality. A person may be talkative and adventurous and be humble. It's not an issue of position. A person may be a leader and well-known and humble. A person may be obscure and possessing a few gifts and yet be proud. Humility may also grow over the course of the Christian life. In fact, the more we learn of our sin and of the grace of the Lord Jesus, the more humble we should be. Humility is is not about denying the gifts and callings that God has given us. This is not self-pity or false humility where we lie about what God has called us to be and what he's allowed us to do. It's not about being indecisive. It's rather decisively using your life for the good of others and not for the promotion of yourself. Humility requires the ability to distinguish between a gospel issue and a personal preference issue. Let's talk about a few categories. Humility in our service. Humility in our service. Sometimes servanthood in the church can be an arena in which we want to exercise selfish ambition. I want to serve in ways that I think are important and not in ways that I think are not important. I am envious of a certain role 
on a certain team or a certain way of serving in the church, and I despise another role. What is that but selfish ambition creeping in to the kingdom of a crucified Savior? I remember talking to a a young person years ago, and they were talking about ways of serving in the church, and, and and they, they were talking about um, <laughs> uh, my friend Mark Wally, who serves his church and has heroically. And they said to me, when can I get to do the really important things, like what Mr. Mark does? <laughs> and they were saying, I don't want to do the stuff that you do, which is not important. I want to do the stuff that is really important. <laughs> And I I loved it. I thought, may we always have that perspective in the church. The person who is the most honored is the person who does the most without recognition. May that be our ambition. Whether we're called to be up front, behind the scenes, whether we're called to labor in obscurity or publicly, whether we're called to do the task that no one else likes doing, but has to be done. May there be an ambition to be humble. An ambition to be humble. An ambition to reflect the Savior who washed feet. An ambition to lay down rights. You know, one of the ways I think that the doctrine of gifts has sometimes not served the community of God's people, especially over recent decades, is sometimes uh, there's been teaching that our gifts are the only thing to consider uh, when it comes to our service in the church. That if we are gifted in a certain way, that's the way we should serve. But both are categories in the scriptures. Should we use the gifts God has given us to serve the church? Yes, absolutely. Are we only to serve using those gifts? No, absolutely not. It's not as though Jesus was the best foot washer. And he said, well, you guys are lame foot washers. I'll do this. No, he's not the best foot washer. Their feet needed to be washed, and he needed to teach them a lesson about humility. Many times, we serve where there's a need, the people of God. It's not as though when, when somebody comes and says they have to move, we say, well, I'm, I'm not as good at moving. I'm great at hospitality and terrible at moving. I like singing and not children's ministry, or I'm interested in uh, greeting and, and not set up, or you pick the category. I don't, I don't like evangelistic outreach. I'm, I'm really interested in youth ministry. No, should we serve where we have gifts? Yes, but there should be a, a disposition to count others' interests ahead of our own. And there should never be a selfish ambition to attain to a certain level of recognition in the church. If we're called to serve behind the scenes, we should long for and desire that opportunity. Humility in our service. What about humility in our conflicts? Another time where we need to hear this word, the importance of unity in the church. Humility in our conflicts. What happens when someone sins against you? 
And the worst times are when they're not aware that they're doing that. They're hypocritical or they're calling you out for something that you know they do as well. Philippians 2 has to come into play in that moment. I'm counting this person's interests ahead of my own. What does that mean? Well, it means I'm, I'm not looking to dominate them in this discussion. I'm looking to serve them. Might that include a gentle observation or correction? Yeah, yes, it might. But I'm not looking to defend myself because I deserve to be treated a certain way. How many conflicts are based on selfish ambition? Demanding that I be respected the way I deserve. Fathers sometimes do that towards their children or towards their spouses. Mothers sometimes do that towards their friends or towards those. I, I deserve to be treated a certain way. Paul says, let there be no selfish ambition, not concerned with the way you're treated, not concerned to defend your reputation, not concerned to honor yourself in the face of others. No, I am discerning a need in the moment to lay my own interests down for you. I have something I need to say says a person who is often not considering the other person's interests ahead of their own. Humility in our conflicts. Listen, if I can speak to married couples, conflicts should be a race towards humility. How can I humble myself? How can I consider your concerns first? Should you consider mine? Yes, you should be humble as well, but I'm, I'm called to consider your concerns first. I think the importance of this word each is Paul making eye contact with each Christian in the Philippian church. Notice he transitions from a general corporate to each. Let each of you, and commentators say that's, that's intentional. He's moving from this is generally a unity that the church needs to have to looking at them eyeball to eyeball and saying, you, you don't count your own interests ahead of that other sister's. You don't count your time more important than the time of your children or your spouse. You, you don't count your preferences more important than the preferences of your small group member or your community group leader or your ministry team leader or your fellow Christian. Don't, don't you count your interest ahead of theirs. Rather, show the worthiness of the gospel of a crucified Savior by gladly, cheerfully laying down your interests and lifting up theirs. Humility in our conflicts. There's also humility in our conversations. This is very practical, very practical. But if we're considering another person's interests ahead of our own, I think we should be much, much better at listening than we naturally are. Because we're interested. What a great word. We're interested in them. We're interested in their interests. We're looking out for their interests. We're, we're not looking to demonstrate our conversational skill and ability in this conversation. We're, we're, we're interested in them. We're looking out for their interests. What would serve you in this conversation? How, how can I understand that unless I'm asking questions to understand what's going on in your life? How is God at work in your life? What's, what are you facing as a, as a, as a, as a worker, an employee at a, at a job? What are you facing in your health? How can I consider your interests if I'm not aware of them? 
very, very practically, there should be a, a, hum, a, a humility of speech that comes into our conversations. We're looking for ways to show deference to the other person, to build them up in this conversation, to encourage them, to, to serve them, to hear from them, to look out for their interest. I'm not looking to promote myself and brag about myself and talk about myself and share how wise and witty and humorous I am and tell stories about myself. I'm looking to promote their interests and not myself. Listen, if you, if you just did a, a graph of your conversations, how much of them are about you? Do nothing from selfish ambition. That includes when we're talking. (laughs) Or vain conceit. But consider others' interests ahead of your own. In our service, in our conflicts, in our conversations, in all of life, we're to be these people that are constantly pushing others forward. Not afraid to step forward ourselves if that's what servanthood calls for. But we're constantly pushing others forward. How can I promote you? How can I encourage you? How can I be interested in your interests? How can I watch out for you? How can I promote you even at the expense of myself? How can I make you aware of God's grace at work in your life? Look, the blessings of the gospel, the call of Christ who was crucified in our place is a call towards lowliness for the good of others. Not timidity, not softness in gospel doctrine, but lowliness in personal relationships. Lowliness in terms of the preferences and desires of others around us. What would serve this person right now? And for Paul, this is an occasion of joy. It's a joy to see the church this way. Not because it's more efficient, but because it's more like Christ. Not because it gives him less trouble, but because in order to accurately reflect a crucified Messiah, the church must be humble. A proud church speaks blasphemy of the Messiah that died to save them. A proud church speaks blasphemy of the Messiah that died to save them. We can't claim Jesus as our Lord and promote ourselves as our habit. The unity of the church reflects the glory of the gospel. That glory is dependent on the humility of each Christian, living as a willing servant focused on others' interests and refusing to think highly of themselves. Now, I know that most of us have not served in the military. We do have some that have. And certainly, probably none of us have served directly with a president. But all of us are called to treat those around us as if they were more significant than us. Those around us aren't royalty, probably aren't in positions of power and prestige, but we're called to treat them as though they were. For George Marshall, deferring to the president's wishes was his obvious duty. The president was more important than he was. He served at the pleasure of someone more significant than himself. 
And that is precisely how we are to view every other Christian. Just as ready to say to the Lord, I will cheerfully do whatever I can do for the interests of this fellow Christian so that the resulting unity of the church reflects glory on the gospel. May we be a church so aware of our conditions in Christ, the gifts we have been given in Christ, that we are unified through our humility, laboring to lift up others, wives, husbands, children, fellow church members, the suffering, those serving alongside of us, laboring to lift up others to reflect honor on the gospel that has saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for the great comfort we receive in your gospel. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be ambitious to be humble in a way that reflects you. Lord, give us an ambition. Give us a a desire, a zeal to be humble in a way that reflects you. To be like you, Lord, in washing one another's feet, looking to lay down our pride and lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us despise the selfish ambition that often rises up in our hearts. Concern for our own reputation, concern for our own rights and preferences, Lord. The concern that we be treated as we think we deserve. Lord, let us rather delight in the beauty of humility. Let us delight in it wherever we see it all around us. Let us delight in it when we see it present in our fellow church members. Let us celebrate it as a reflection of our Savior. Do this among us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like to make a a very personal application here. Um, I'd like to thank, in a particular way, those of you who serve young children, um, whether you do that as, as your job, whether you do that at home, whether you've served in our, our children's ministry, if, if you serve young children in any way, could you just raise your hand real quick? Thank you. And, and I just want to say thank you for your humble servanthood. According to the scriptures, that is a glory to you. Thank you for humbly serving those little ones. I believe the Savior is honored and pleased by those that serve little children and count their needs more significant than their own. Thank you. I also want to thank so many of you, more than can even be named this morning, who serve this whole church body in countless ways. Setting up on a Sunday morning, serving with meal trains for people in need of of meals when they're sick, serving when people move, serving with hospitality, serving with outreach and evangelistic efforts, serving with ministry times. Thank you for serving. 
Thank you for reflecting the humility that Paul is calling us to here. Thank you for being a servant-hearted church. We believe as pastors that you are, and we are grateful for that. We want to, all of us strive to continue, but we also want to thank you and commend you for the servant-heartedness that is present already in this community.